well, everyone, lovely to see you all here this evening. I hope that got the creative juices flowing. Um, so, yeah, so tonight we're moving on to week two. Um, so we're carrying on with Philippians. So I just thought we'd um, just start in prayer and then, and then we'll, uh, we'll go on to the reading. So I think Emma's going to come up and read um, after I've prayed. Lord, thank you for gathering us all here this evening. I thank you that we have this opportunity to, to look at your word. And I pray that you'll inspire us this evening, Lord, through the discussions and, and through the talk. And that we'll really hear from you and uh, gain a deeper understanding of your love for us. Amen. So it's uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Paul's chains advance the gospel. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Holy Spirit, of the, the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out, of my deliver, turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live in Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Thank you, Emma. Um, so last week uh, we had a wonderful talk from Jo and uh, she done such a wonderful job that I think it's hard to find anyone to follow up. So luckily her husband, Colin, has got the arduous task. Um, yes, uh, so I'll just pray for you before we start. Lord, I pray that uh, you'll speak through Colin, that you'll guide his, uh, his words, Lord, and that um, you just empower him to, to speak your word this evening. Amen. Thank you. Is this working? Can everyone hear me? Excellent. 
That's really quite an incredible passage, isn't it? When I first read that through and started writing notes of what I might want to talk about tonight, I quickly realised I could probably fill an hour. Um, Fortunately, I decided to cut it down a bit, so we're looking at about 15 minutes. So a good chance to have a nap if you're finding a bit tired at the moment. There's so much I could talk about in that passage, but I'm going to try and just focus on two particular points in there. I am in chains for Christ, and to live is Christ, to die is gain. Because in those two short lines, Paul presents a way of viewing the world, a way of living our lives that is so different from anything else that we might expect. It really does encapsulate how we can live in Christ. But what does that actually mean? And I'm hoping by the end of the tonight we'll all have a better understanding of that, maybe a nice quick definition written down in our handbooks. But I want to start with a warning, if I may. It's probably relatively easy to come up with a definition, to write that down. But there's a big difference between understanding it and living it and doing it and being it. And for me, as I was preparing tonight, that was one of those challenges, those concerns that kept coming back to me again and again. Because I think that's one of the biggest issues we all face as God's church, as Christians, as God's salespeople, if you like. There is so often such a massive disconnect between what it means to live in Christ and how we betray ourselves, how we are betrayed across the world. You may remember a few years ago there was a big national controversy when an atheist group took out a series of adverts on London buses. There's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. The reaction from the church groups, the church community at the time, was really quite dramatic, as you might understand. Any of you like me who read the Church Times avidly may remember some of the rather impassioned letters that came in week after week, the blatant attack on our Christian society. But for me, I didn't get angry. I didn't feel attacked or persecuted. What those adverts did make me feel was sad, depressed, because they showed that for so many people out there, people who don't know Christ, That is how they perceive what it means to live in Christ. That is what they think being a Christian is all about. Restrictions, being depressed, negative influences. So rather than shouting and wanting to write angry letters to Richard Dawkins or whoever, what we could have done at that point was to sit down and see that for what it really was. A challenge, a warning, not an attack then we could have asked ourselves, what is it? What's going wrong that means we're seen like that, that we're portrayed like that? I think, as some of you know, I work for the Church of England. I work for the Bishop of Winchester. And a few months ago, I had to run a slightly strange day. We had a group of students from Winchester University who came in on some sort of management training exercise. A whole load had been sent off to the police headquarters, some had gone to local business leaders, others to the county council, and then the last group got sent to me to talk about the Church of England. I don't think they were that impressed. And so I started by trying to find out from them what they understood of the church. I had one girl there in a group of about 12 who had been to a Church of England primary school many years before, and that was it. They were completely unchurched, to use that sort of language. So I asked them what their view of Christ was, what their view of Christianity and the church was. And it started off sort of nice enough. Oh, church is about being nice to people, isn't it? You've got lots of lovely old buildings. My aunt helps out at her summer fete at her church every year and really enjoys that. 
Church is great for people going through a tough time. Then they started to relax a bit more, maybe get a bit more honest. You're out of touch. There's lots of rules. You're restrictive, misogynistic, homophobic, judgmental, controlling, divisive. For them, that London bus really did sum up how they saw Christianity, how they saw God's church. And can we blame them? If we look across the world today, the way Christians behave, or people calling themselves Christians behave, maybe I should say, and how we are often presented, those views do seem difficult to argue against. Stereotypes of Christians so often portrayed in society and the media, first of all, you've got the angry, judgmental Christian, constantly criticising, condemning, attacking anyone who doesn't agree with them, anyone who doesn't fit with their view of the world. Then you've got the other end, the overly optimistic Christian, always with a fixed grin in their face, probably wearing socks and sandals and breaking into rousing renditions of Shine Jesus Shine at a moment's notice, basically using the Bible as a self-help book and God as their own personal genie there to solve their problems and grant their wishes. Do either of those views actually say this is what it means to live in Christ? Well, I think in these few short passages we've read tonight, Paul presents us an image of what that actually means, what that looks like. Because if we remember Paul's journey so far, he was a man of importance, status, authority, a Roman citizen respected and feared in his community. Then he met Christ, and everything changed. But he didn't just go back to a neutral starting point. He actually became persecuted, He was shipwrecked. He was frequently starving. He was imprisoned time and again where he was beaten, flogged, tormented by his jailers. For him, following Christ certainly wasn't a nice, cosy Sunday morning club that made him feel a little bit better about himself. But neither did following Christ make him into an angry, judgmental, condemning person. In fact, if we look at this passage, when he's there in prison, incarcerated, in chains, he uses it as an opportunity to spread the gospel. That wonderful statement, that quite simple statement, they know that I am in chains for Christ. He's not there because he's guilty of a crime. He's there because of his belief. It's an incredible message. It's also a really daunting challenge for us. A challenge to see those things around us that we believe to be our restrictions, but can actually be our greatest tools. Paul's chains were the embodiment of his imprisonment, but he used it to still further the gospel. We get this wonderful image of him chained to a different palace guard every day, being led round the prison, and using it as a chance to talk to the guard about Christ, about Christ's life and what had happened to him. It really is every preacher's dream, the audience that literally can't escape you. It's wonderful. Reading that reminded me of a bit in The Hiding Place by Corrie Ten Boom, and I'm sure many of you will have read it. If you haven't, I do recommend it. Joe finally forced me to read it over the summer, and uh, I'd been resisting, and unfortunately she was right. It was really inspiring. Just please don't tell her that. It's the true story of a family during the Second World War who hide Jews and do all sorts of other things. And there's a bit sort of halfway through the book where Corrie and her sister are in a Nazi concentration camp. Hundreds of women crowded into one room, sleeping on little more than planks of woods, completely infested with lice. 
Now, all the way through the story, Corrie's sister insists on thanking God for everything that happens to them. So she thanks God for the lice. And Corrie cannot understand this. How can you thank God for the lice? As they spend more time there each night, they start to preach and teach the gospel to the ladies they're incarcerated with. And every night, more and more women join them to hear the good news. And they get away with it. The guards don't interrupt them because the guards are frightened of the lice. They don't want to come into the room and be infested. The lice go from being a source of irritation to being their greatest strength. They're just like Paul's chains. I do wonder what the chains are in our own lives, those things that we see as restricting us, holding us back, which if we could just flip our perception, might be really important tools for God. So as well as being a great example here of living to Christ, Paul goes further, and in verse 21, he comes out with that extraordinary statement. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That really sums up what living in Christ is all about. It's about having a completely different perspective of the world. Just as Paul flips the chains from being a source of restriction and pain to being a tool for evangelism, if we can change our perception on life, then suddenly living in Christ is no longer a burden, a source of stress or restriction. It becomes the very embodiment, the essence of being free and joyful. If we live in Christ, even that moment of ultimate loss, death, is actually reversed to be a point of great gain where you get to join Christ yourself. To live in Christ is to make him your focus, your centre. If your reason to live is to serve Christ, then that becomes your priority in all things. Paul's imprisonment couldn't destroy him. Being locked up, beaten, starved, humiliated didn't matter because he didn't live for freedom, comfort, food or respect. He lived for Christ. He could seem to lose everything, but he still had Christ, so lost nothing. That was meant to come up about five minutes ago, but never mind. <laughs> Change perspectives, you see, is brilliant. Now, living in Christ doesn't necessarily mean that you're longing for death, counting the days before you get to join Jesus, however tempting that may seem. Because we also need to remember that if we live in Christ, we have a responsibility, a real joyous privilege to serve him and to help spread his gospel and further his kingdom. What Paul describes as fruitful labor in verse 22. So whilst, as he sort of honestly says in that passage, you know, he longs to be with Christ, he longs for death, longs to escape his imprisonment and torment, he also knows that he still has work to do, a reason to stay, a purpose to fulfill. So that is what living in Christ means. Prioritising Christ above all else in our lives, over our jobs, our relationships, our possessions, money, hobbies, over our own wants and desires. Christ is the centre, the purpose. Christ is our desire. And if that's the case, then there's nothing to fear, nothing to worry about, because Christ will never leave us, and our journey will only take us closer to him. It's the ultimate win-win situation, although possibly not that easy to achieve for many of us, including myself. So to close, I'd like to challenge us to think back to that advert on the London bus and to try and think of what that might have looked like if Christians in this country and across the world were able to live in, that, in Christ in the way Paul starts to hint at in those passages. 
How would people then see the church? How would they see Christ? Would God be seen as a source of worry and sadness or a source of joy and freedom? Which of those two statements would have ended up on the side of the bus? Fred, I couldn't find one that said there's definitely a God. It probably was the closest I could come up to in my last minute planning for this. So if we live in Christ, if we live for Christ, putting him first, then even death, the point of all loss, actually becomes the point of all gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Thank you.